This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong, and here's the consumer news from the past week. Are you going to be flying early next week? Well, Vancouver International Airport is reminding all of us to plan ahead if you are, because it's going to be busy. Between yesterday and December 26th, close to 70,000 passengers will be traveling through the airport every single day, flying to 97 different destinations. The airport says the busiest day of this month was probably yesterday, with nearly 75,000 passengers using YVR. But Tuesday, which is Boxing Day, should be hopping as well. The airport recommends if you're flying, you should definitely check your flight status online before coming to the airport to make sure everything is as it should be. Are you getting good financial advice these days? Sometimes it's from a professional. Sometimes it's from your brother-in-law. But is it good advice? One certified financial planner says young people are especially susceptible to getting bad advice, especially in three major areas, real estate, self-directed investing, and education. Nearly 70% of readers recently surveyed by the financial lifestyle magazine Money Sense say they've lost money as a result of getting bad financial advice. The Canadian Revenue Agency has fired another 65 employees for claiming a federal COVID-19 benefit when they were not eligible for it. That brings the total to almost 200 so far as the CRA continues to review about 600 cases in which current employees received the Canada Emergency Response Benefit during the pandemic. So far, it has found that uh, 116 employees who received CERB were eligible for the $2,000 per month benefit. Those who weren't are expected to pay back the dough. The forest fires that forced more than 200,000 people out of their homes across the country have been named the Canadian Press Story of the Year. It was bad this year, with smoke blackening an area three times the size of Nova Scotia which was more than double the land that burned in the record-breaking year for fires in Canada in 1995. The wildfire stories received 39% of the votes in the annual poll of broadcast news directors and newspaper editors as to what the biggest stories were. Inflation was second, and the housing crisis was third. Well, wildfires and floods have been really tough on communities across B.C. in 2023, and it's left this province with a problem. Depending on where you are, there is often too much water or not enough of it. Water sustainability expert Oliver Brandes says a key solution to mitigating wildfires, flooding, and drought is to keep natural infrastructure healthy. He describes wildfires, floods, drought, and contamination as the, quote, four horsemen of the water apocalypse. And he says the links between them are clear. After more than a century of industrial and urban development, the B.C. government is working to develop a watershed security strategy with an expected release sometime next year. Canada's population continues to grow, and it was people arriving in the country to work or study, which boosted the country's population by a record 430,000-plus in the third quarter. As of October 1st, 40.5 million people call Canada home. 
population growth over the first nine months of the year has already surpassed the growth in any other full year, including the record set just last year. And disgraced Tour de France champion cyclist Lance Armstrong had more than $100,000 worth of racing bikes stolen from his Austin, Texas storage unit earlier this month. But he got some help from Hello Kitty to find them. Security footage showed two guys breaking into a storage unit and loading three bikes into a black SUV on the morning of December 10th. They came back later that day and stole three more, worth about $100,000 in total. Investigators noticed on the video, though, a distinctive Hello Kitty sticker on the SUV. They found that vehicle and arrested two men on theft charges. I'm Martin Strong, and up next, we'll take a look at the world of art with the folks from the Vancouver Art Gallery. They've got a new exhibition on now that's more than just a series of paintings. It's kind of a mystery story. I'll explain that when Vancouver Consumer continues right after this. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong. And when you think about those days after Christmas, you know the, that weird zone between Christmas and New Year's, often a great time to just relax, get out, and see what's happening in the city. For example, the Vancouver Art Gallery. Right now, the Vancouver Art Gallery has all sorts of great stuff to see, including a brand new exhibit featuring the group of seven, including some previously never before seen works. And uh, reading about it, it's almost like a mystery story. The show is called J.E.H. McDonald, A Tangled Garden. And it's a cool story because back in 2015, the art gallery was given a gift of 10 sketches, which were credited to the painter J.E.H. MacDonald, one of the group of seven. That's their famous group of Canadian landscape painters, which also included Emily Carr. But back in 2015, some experts started questioning whether or not McDonald actually did these sketches. And the gallery postponed a planned exhibition, brought in some experts, art historians, handwriting experts, trying to figure out who really made these works of art. And what they found out was pretty interesting. And you can see the whole process of this mystery as part of the exhibition, which is on right now at the Vancouver Art Gallery. And to tell us about it is the Senior Curator of Canadian Art at the Vancouver Art Gallery, Richard Hill. Hi, Richard. How are you? I'm doing great. Excellent. So did I describe that correctly? Is that what happened? Do, do, is there anything more you need to tell us? Um, you got it exactly right. And uh, there's a ton more I can tell you if you want. Uh, yeah. Lots of detail. There's uh, a lot of information in the exhibition. We really give you a chance to go through, um, you know, our entire process, how we, how we look at a work of art, how we decide whether uh, we can safely attribute it to a particular artist and all the steps we took when we got into, uh, you know, when questions were raised about these works. Yeah. So when, when do these works of art, uh, when were they made? Well, that's a that's part of the mystery. <laughs> um, we thought they were made as preliminary sketches for uh, initially. We thought that uh, that they were um, preliminary sketches for a series of pretty well known paintings by J. H. Macdonald, uh, at least most of them. 
Um, and uh, of course, now they sit in our um, in our list as uh, with an ND, no date. We don't know for sure when they were made. Yeah, uh, I, I would guess probably in the seventies, but I, I, I'm not sure. There's, right. there's no way to know for sure. Right. So as as a curator, especially of Canadian art, um, I love the idea that all of a sudden you're a curator and you're also a bit of a detective. And I love the idea that you took the whole process of being a detective and turned that into the exhibition. That seems very cool to me. Yeah, I, I think it was really just a really nice chance to, you know, pull back the veil a little bit on how we do what we do. And that part is interesting. And at the same time, also, um, because there's video interviews with a lot of the people who are involved and other things like that, you also get a sense of the personalities behind uh, the scenes as well, which I think people, re- you know, a lot of people, you know, you think of the Vancouver Art Gallery, it's this institution and it, uh, you know, people come and go and it lives on in its own way. But at the same time, it's always really just the kind of aggregate of all the people involved. And, uh, I think when you see, um, you know, some of the, the interviews, you just really get a sense of the kind of passion uh, people have for the work they do and uh, and just how excited they get. And that, uh, I think, is really, uh, really interesting to see. Yeah. Did you did you ever think, you know, at, at one point, did you think this is above my pay grade? I can't figure that. Or is this exactly <laughs> what is this exactly what you love to do as a curator? Um, there are parts of this that the scientific analysis, for example, is way above my pay grade and uh, way, you know, way beyond anything that I'm capable of. Uh, you know, I, I've tried to understand it as well as I can and present it, but uh, it's extremely technical, of course. Um, but the results are really fascinating. So it was really the science in the end that, uh, that came through. Yeah. Is that changing all the time, the science of being able to, to date uh, paintings and figure out, you know, where they're from, et cetera. I guess with, with new technology, it must be uh, getting kind of interesting. Yeah, I think there, there is a lot you can do. And again, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm really just the, the vehicle for that in a certain, in a certain sense. But, um, you know, for the, the, one of the things that we were actually really lucky uh, about was that um, we were able to work with the Canadian Conservation Institute in Ottawa um, and their job is really to help other institutions uh, to do exactly this kind of work to figure out, um, you know, what, what's going on in, in, with, con- with contested works, for example. And they have, a, you know, all the equipment and things like that, the lab that we don't have. And so they were able to go through. Um, but they had also already been doing uh, research on J.H. McDonald. Um, they had been working with the McMichael Canadian Collection. Um, just outside Toronto, and they had been making a, an inventory of uh, his known works and, you know, looking at all of the things that, uh, you know, come into play when you're making an identification, figuring out and, and just understanding his work. So looking at which pigments he typically used, what kind of panels he painted on at different times in his career, um, you know, all of these things that they were able to have in a database. And so that helps a lot for, for all of us. If, you know, if something comes in, then we can compare it to that information they've gathered. But the most conclusive part actually turned out to be, uh, you know, straight science. They were able to take paint samples from the works and analyze them. 
and through this multi-step process, which again, I, I struggle <laughs> to understand myself, but uh, in the end, it turned out there were on eight of the um, paintings, there were pigments that uh, um, uh, titanium white, uh, rutile titanium white, and phallocyanine uh, green that were just not available during the artist's lifetime. So he couldn't possibly have um, painted them. Wow. Wow. So, and I guess you don't want to give too many spoilers because part of the process of going to this exhibition is, is seeing this sort of mystery unfold. But um, what can you tell us without, you know, spoiling the whole thing about who painted them and, 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 you know, where they're going now? Um, I don't know who painted them still. That's, that part is still a mystery. We just know it wasn't McDonald's. Um, so, that you know that is the, the big the big spoiler but i i think the 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 value of coming to the exhibition is you can really immerse yourself in the process you can really hear from the people who did the work um and we have things like for example you know we walk you through all the stages of what an art historian might do so the the first thing that we often typically do we'll, we'll just look at what's before us you know that often we end up maybe in a collector's home or in a situation like that. And there's a work there and you look at it. And the first thing you're doing is just doing a visual analysis. You're seeing, is this artwork, is the artist who painted this work using color in the typical way that, um, you know, you know that artist to do. You have a kind of inventory of other works by the artist in your mind and you're, you're kind of comparing to what you know. Um, and that part is um, often has a really strong sub subjective element to it. And art historians often end up arguing, debating over uh, attributions that are based just on visual analysis. But we give the visitors also an opportunity. We have um, uh, eight works on the wall uh, and uh, three of them are um, works that we don't think we can any longer attribute to J.H. McDonald. But the others all are securely identified McDonald works. And so the visitor who comes in can uh, test their own eye because we don't have any labels on them. We just have QR codes. So you can go up and, and try to see if, how your eye compares to uh, the art historians who looked at them. And you can, you can make your own guess and then uh, test it with a QR code in the gallery app. That's the first step. Um, the other step I think that was really important uh, but again, you know, so when we brought, uh, for example, Char Charles Hill, who was as a retired curator from uh, the National Gallery of Canada and one of the great experts on the Group of Seven, um, when we brought him in to look at them, when there were questions starting to be asked, he had, you know, he looked at the palette, of, you know, the colors that the artists used, and he, you know, he thought, okay, these are too hot, they're too, too intense, too many yellows, reds, brights, they didn't look right to him. Um, to other art historians had looked at it and, and felt that it was fine. So, you know, again, this is a subjective element, but that's that's the point at which, uh, you know, decisions start to be made. He also thought the breaststrokes were a little bit thicker and maybe a bit more clumsily applied than you would expect from J.H. McDonald, who tend to have tended to have a bit more variety in the way he applied paint to the canvas. Um, so there's that aspect, and that's suggestive. That's that you know this senior art historian who really knows this work well thought it didn't look right. Uh, of course, that's not conclusive. And so you go through other steps. He did art historical research. So he's looking at other uh, facts he knows about the works. And it's really interesting when you have a work that's supposedly a sketch for a finished painting. 
um, because that gives you some some questions you can ask and some things you can look into. And he was aware, for example, that one of the this is a bit of a complicated story, but I'll try, and hard, especially hard to do without visual aids. But um, <laughs> when when McDonald um, first presented the final painting that our sketch is supposed to be a sketch for uh, in an Ontario Society of Artists exhibition in 1916. Um, it was reproduced in black and white in the exhibition catalog. And when you look at that old photograph, you can see that that version of the painting looks different than the one we have now, uh, which is, I believe, in the National Gallery of Canada. And what obviously happened is McDonald went and repainted parts of the painting. He made the sky in the upper left corner a brighter blue to give a bit more contrast and make it a bit more dramatic. And so our sketch, supposed sketch for this painting, um, reflects the later state of the painting and not the original state. And so Charlie Charles Hill looked at that and said, well, this doesn't look like it's a sketch for this painting. It looks like it's a copy after the, after the final version of the painting. And he found a number of other instances where there were uh, evidence to that effect. And so, again, that suggests... Uh, it doesn't guarantee that they're not painted by McDonald, but it makes it a lot less likely. We are talking art uh, with Richard Hill, who's the senior curator of Canadian art at the Vancouver Art Gallery. You can find them online, vanartgallery.bc.ca. And uh, one of the things uh, that is on now at the gallery, because there's always a lot of stuff to look at at the Vancouver Art Gallery, but the exhibition that's on now is called J.E.H. McDonald, question mark, A Tangled Garden. And it's the story of some sketches that they got that were credited to J.E.H. McDonald. And there were, he's a group of seven painter. And, uh, and there was some question whether he actually did them. And it's a look at how art historians and curators like Richard Hill uh, actually figure out who painted them, where do they come from, and what's the story about them. And uh, it seems like a really fascinating exhibition. It's more than just looking at a bunch of paintings on a wall. So let's talk a little bit about the group of seven. I think for most people, they the first name that comes to mind is Emily Carr. But why is the group of seven, this group of Canadian landscape painters, so important, not only to Canadian art, but to painting, you know, around the world? Yeah, well, I, I think this group of painters and there's the group of seven and, you know, there's artists that are really associated with them, uh, like Tom Thompson, who actually passed away before the group officially formed and Emily Carr, who became a, a good friend and, and compatriot, but wasn't, you know, officially in the group. Um, but I think the reason those artists are so important, well, there's, I, there's multiple reasons, but, uh, I think the, the, the main, the main reason is, uh, they were Canada's first modernist landscape painters. Um, so that's a, you know, that's a major transition. And, and I think especially they're often thought of, I mean, this becomes very complicated in terms of the implications and how you think about it. But, uh, I think they were really trying to represent, um, uh, not just, uh, you know, the continuation of a European tradition, but the establishment of a, a kind of distinctively Canadian way of looking at the landscape. And over the years, that's become very important in different ways in terms of how Canadians think about themselves and 
uh, how our identity does or doesn't relate to uh, our relationship to the specific landscapes here. Obviously, anyone who lives in BC and especially in the lower mainland, you know, you just have to look at an Emily Carr and you're recognizing a landscape that's uh, very distinct and very familiar to all of us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and a lot of uh, indigenous imagery, which uh, I guess was 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 that being represented at the time or not? Um, it was it was unusual to have an artist represent that. The world was very fascinated almost instantly by what was happening on the Northwest, you know, indigenous artists of the Northwest Coast. People recognized there was this incredibly powerful art form here and people were fascinated from it, about it from all sorts of perspectives. But I think and people came from all around to see it. But um, I think Emily Carr's depiction was especially um it's complicated now because people look back on it and they see all those, you know, late Victorian attitudes and things like that. But I think Emily Carr really was um, trying to work in a sympathetic way. And, uh, and it's, you know, she left a lot of really important um, um, imagery and, and I think really, you know, kind of grappled with that, that history as well as she could from the, the position she was in at the time. Yeah, and and Emily Carr especially, and uh, and those other the group of seven painters, they're well rese- represented at the Vancouver Art Gallery always. Like uh, you have the other exhibitions that go, but if you go to the, I guess it's the top floor, you can always see the the these group of seven painter painters well represented. Yeah, there's been a few times when there's been a when we haven't, and we always hear about it. So <laughs> uh, I think it's really something. And going forward with the new building. Um, you know, one of the things that we're really with more space, it's going to be a lot easier for us to have our permanent collection out more. And we have what a really incredible collection. And of course, it's not exactly the biggest Emily Carr collection, but it's, I am, for my money, it's the best. Uh, and so I, I'm really excited about what we're going to be able to do with that and really try to, um, you know, give some really added value to, to that collection by letting people see the research that we're doing on it and, and kind of keeping it active. Um, yeah, that's really important. We're talking to Richard Hill, Senior Curator of Canadian Art at the Vancouver Art Gallery, vanartgallery.bc.ca. And you mentioned the new building. And uh, I've seen uh, artists' renderings of this. It's it's just kind of down the street from the, uh, the, the building where it is now. But uh, what can you tell us about when, when is it going to open or, or do we even know the, the date? We're hoping, I think it's, uh, I'm, I'm terrible. I'm a, the only art historian you'll ever meet who's really terrible at remembering numbers. It's a real <laughs> disability in my field. But uh, I, I, I think the, the, the hope is to have it uh, opening in uh, 2028. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it seems like a long way off, but from our perspective, it's, it feels also like it's kind of rushing towards us a bit like a freight train. So, um, there's so much going on around that. And, uh, and actually I'm grateful because you're actually giving me an opportunity also to talk about the other show that's across the corridor from the one I curated, uh, uh on JH McDonald, which I also curated, which is called Rooted Here, uh, woven from the land because, um, one of the really important things that happened with the design of the new building is that we were um, this and this happened actually before I joined the gallery, but um, the director, Anthony Kindle, um, really wanted to work with um, local um, host nations, indigenous communities. And so um, there's 
uh, four weavers, uh, Salish weavers uh, from Musqueam, Swamish, and Tsleil-Waututh heritage who uh, ended up collaborating with the architects, uh, Herzog and Demiron, um, you know, really famous architects who are really well known for designing uh, museum buildings, especially. And um, they got together and started talking about, um, you know, what, how that the, the building could reflect um, the, the Salish heritage here. And um, they immediately got into this very fascinating conversation about um, about weaving and whether that because Herzog and Demiron especially are known for creating these very complicated and very uh, tactile surfaces on their buildings, you know, quite unusual often and really distinctive. And so they ended up um, really exchanging a lot of information and ideas with the weavers and, and the facade of our building is a kind of woven copper uh, facade. Um, it's going to be, I think, unlike anything anyone's uh, seen in the city, maybe anywhere. Um, and it very uniquely um, brings forward that the, you know, the Salish weaving tradition, but also the, the idea of kind of wrapping and folding um, yeah, the building in the, uh, in this kind of protective uh, woven robe. It's very beautiful. Uh, and so the other exhibition just across the hall from J.H. McDonald is, is about the work of the weavers, um, their role in um, the revival of that weaving tradition, which was obviously interrupted by colonialism and um, and their uh, and then kind of concludes with their um, collaboration with the architects. So you can see actually a one to one uh, model or mock up of um, our, our new building facade. Um, and you know that's that's available, and you can see the um, the exchange of objects that happened between the architects and the weavers as they kind of taught taught them weaving, and then the architects thought about how to translate those patterns and that, those techniques of weaving into you know modern architectural materials. Uh, it's really quite uh, fascinating. And that's all on now at the Vancouver Art Gallery. Just go to vanartgallery.bc.ca for all the information and uh, head out if you've got some time over the holidays because uh, the Vancouver Art Gallery is a, is a great place to, to kind of catch your breath sometimes. And uh, right now they've got the J.E.H. McDonald. Uh, question mark, a tangled garden on there. And also uh, that exhibition that, uh, that uh, Richard Hill is talking about. And uh, I guess it's kind of an exciting time to be a, you know, one of the curators at the art gallery, because you now have the opportunity with the new art gallery to kind of rethink, not just, not the fact that you have more space on the walls to put up more stuff, but to really rethink about what an art gallery is and what people want from their art gallery. I guess that's changing all the time. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really exciting. It's really, uh, it's a huge responsibility at the same time because, you know, this kind of opportunity, it's not even a once in a generation. It's once in, I don't know, you know, it, I mean, the chance to actually start from the ground up and and try to build exactly what you want is, is really, um, yeah, it's exciting and a daunting challenge. And at the same time, uh, I think, you know, the the building that we're in now was, designed by, you know, I guess Vancouver's most famous architect, Arthur Erickson, redesigned the courthouse. Um, but he redesigned it just at the moment when um, we were moving from art being all about painting on the wall uh, to art also involving lots of media and all sorts of other things. 
you know, video, um, all kinds of uh, interactive things, you know, it gets more and more complicated. So obviously one of the things we're really excited about is being able to design those galleries so that we can do all the kinds of things that artists do now um, easily. We've always managed to do it because we have a really great uh, tech team, but um, it's going to be a lot easier to do that and a lot, there'll be a lot more um, uh, functionality in that way, for example, just as one thing. And I think also people are really wanting to think about the gallery as a, um, a kind of community hub in a certain sense that, um, you know, there's going to be, I think, a lot more um, access to the things that we do around uh, community programming and education and other things like that as well. Yeah. And I, I had a tour once of the uh, the art gallery downstairs, the storage facilities. And there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of art down there that that really wants to see the light of day, isn't there? Yeah, it's I mean, it's quite a it's quite a place down there. You you know, the vaults are one thing and then. Uh, you know, I think I used to film a lot of X-Files episodes down in the, the old uh, scarier parts of our basement. But uh, <laughs> there is a time we, we have, a you know, a really huge uh, collection. It's growing all the time, of course. We're always trying to, you know, selectively bring new things in. And it is kind of jammed to the rafters. So it would be really great to get that stuff out and let people see it because um, that's why we have it in the first place. Right. Well, Richard Hill is the Senior Curator of Canadian Art. And if you'd like to see some of the great Canadian art, uh, go to the Vancouver Art Gallery right now because uh, they have an exhibition there called J.E.H. MacDonald, question mark, A Tangled Garden, which you can see, plus all the other exhibits that they have. Uh, there's always uh, tons of stuff going on at the Art Gallery. You can Go to vanartgallery.bc.ca. Well, Richard, thanks for talking to us and, uh, and uh, have a great holiday. Thanks so much. You too. All right. Richard Hill, Senior Curator of Canadian Art at the Vancouver Art Gallery. And coming up on Vancouver Consumer, if a computer using artificial intelligence comes up with an invention all, all on its own, should that computer be allowed to hold the patent on that invention? And that raises the question, can a computer be classified as a person? Well, the British Supreme Court has just made a decision on that question. And I've got that story next when Vancouver's Consumer continues right after this. This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome back. I'm Martin Strong. Should a computer be able to hold a patent on a new invention. After all, with the new levels of computing power and advanced artificial intelligence, computers are coming up with all sorts of new ideas all the time. This past week, Britain's Supreme Court said no, and it handed a ruling that denies machines the same status as humans. So computers are not people, according to the British Supreme Court. The court says an artificial intelligence system can't be registered as the inventor of a patent and that an inventor must be a person to apply for patents under the current law. American technologist Dr. Stephen Thaler has been waging a legal battle to get his AI listed as the inventor of two patents. He claimed that on its own, his AI computing system called Davis 
created a couple of very helpful and possibly valuable inventions. One was a food and drink container, and the other invention was a new type of warning light system. Thaler argues that even though the computer program invented those things, he should be able to have the rights to them because it was his machine. But the court said because the inventor on the patent application was listed as the computer, it can't be filed. The inventor has to be a person. Dr. Thaler says he's disappointed by the Supreme Court decision, says he believes that Davis, the computer, is a, quote, conscious and sentient form of machine intelligence. And 2023 really has been the year of artificial intelligence. It's been in the news a lot. But much of the coverage of it has been negative. All these scary stories of how it will take over everything and us humans will soon lose control and also lose all our jobs and have to work in the salt mines. Uh, but there have been lots of positive news about artificial intelligence that we probably don't hear enough of. And AI has been responsible for some great leaps forward in the past year. For example, the use of artificial intelligence is proving to be a game changer when it comes to medicine. Uh, there was an announcement this past week that AI technology has helped scientists unlock the first new antibiotics in 60 years. Thanks to artificial intelligence, they have discovered a new class of antibiotics to treat the staph infection MRSA. It's a particularly nasty and drug-resistant strain that kills thousands of people every year right around the world. It's the kind of in infection that people often get while they're in the hospital. So it's going to save a lot of lives. And more and more AI computers are being used to help find new drugs. The programmers call it deep learning. And it's how these ultra-fast computers can find and predict how new drugs could work in a fraction of the time that it used to take. So that's good news. But for now, those computers uh, cannot be designated as people, but they're uh, getting pretty smart. So maybe the computers will figure out a way around that. Anyway, enjoy the rest of the weekend and have yourself a lovely holiday. I'm Martin Strong. This is Vancouver Consumer. Uh, we're here two o'clock every Saturday afternoon. Thanks to our producers, Leo Coelho and Jonathan Chung. And we'll see you next week. I'm Martin Strong. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of the advertiser. The opinions expressed are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW.